If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Revelation chapter 7 this morning. We, after a week off from our study of Revelation, let's uh, take a few moments to remind ourselves of what's happening in this book. The Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile there. And Jesus reveals himself to John in a vision and has him write some words down. The vision at first takes the form of seven letters that he tells John to send to the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. And then the vision takes, the, uh, takes a turn and John is given a vision of heaven, a, a vision of the throne of God in heaven. And he sees God in all of his glory sitting on the throne and the lion who is a lamb, who is Jesus, takes a scroll from the hand of God sitting on the throne and that scroll is closed and shut, sealed with seven seals. And then in chapter 6 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the lamb, Jesus, begins breaking these seals so that he might open the scroll chapter 6 covered six of the seven seals and so what we have here in chapter 7 this morning is an interlude in between the sixth and the seventh seal the seventh seal won't happen until the beginning of chapter 8 and so this is an interlude in the story here in between those two last seals now let's be reminded of what the scroll and the seals are the scroll contains God's sovereign and divine plan to finally bring an answer to all evil, all unrighteousness, and all sin. He's going to judge it all one day. And this is going to be his plan to do that. He's going to flesh out what that looks like. It also contains his final plans to consummate his final and complete salvation of all of his people. And it also includes his plans to make all things new and bring about the restoration of all things in the new heaven and the new earth. Now that's what the scroll itself contains, but the scroll itself is not yet opened. It won't be opened until all seven seals are broken, and we've only broken six of them so far. The first four we called collectively the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in my estimation, when I explained those first four seals, that they were a description of uh, the tribulation that God is going to bring, that God has been bringing on the earth ever since the resurrection of Christ and continuing through to his return. The fifth and sixth seals we covered the last time we were in the book of Revelation. A couple of weeks ago, the fifth seal, remember, was a picture of the martyrs underneath the throne in heaven in John's vision. And these martyrs were, who had been uh, put to death because of their faith in Jesus, they were crying out to God, when will you avenge us for our blood? When are you going to pay back those who have killed us because of our faith in Jesus? And God replies to them, in essence, I'm going to do that, but not yet. Not until the full number of you is complete. In other words, there's going to be more martyrs. And there are continuing to be more martyrs for Christ in our day even. As the tribulation of our day continues. And this will continue until Christ's return. And then the sixth seal is where John begins to describe 
the final judgment which takes place after Jesus' return. And so those six seals covered tribulation on earth that God sends to earth and causes suffering on earth that happens from the ascension of Christ until his return all the way up to the final judgment. And the conditions on the day of that final judgment will be so bad that the unregenerate of that day, unbelievers in that day, it will be so hard on them and so catastrophic that they will cry out, as we read at the end of chapter 6, for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them so that they might escape the coming judgment. And they ask at the end of chapter 6, who will be able to stand on that day? What we have in chapter 7 is the answer to that question. Who will be able to stand on that day? Chapter 7 tells us who. Now we won't have time to cover the whole chapter this morning, but in order for us to gain context for that part of chapter 7, which we will cover, I want us to read the entire chapter together and we'll focus on the first eight verses. And so look at your copy of scripture as we read Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as your people this morning to worship you and to hear from you. And Father, we thank you so much for this book. Thank you for giving us this revelation of you and that we can trust that this is your very breath. These are your words to us. And Father, may the purpose of this book, the book of Revelation, which you tell us in chapter 1 is is to be a blessing to those who hear it. Father, may you cause it to bear fruit in our lives this morning. Father, may you equip and edify and build up your church and prepare this church to face not only the tribulation of this day, but the tribulation that is to come. That we might persevere through whatever happens for your glory and your namesake. We ask that you would do that through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. There are a variety of interpretations of chapter 7, as you can uh, potentially imagine. Um, There are a lot of things for us to unpack here. Probably chiefly, chiefly among them, who are the 144,000 that are listed here? We're told that they're from the tribe of Israel, but is that ethnic physical Israel or is that spiritual Israel, the church? And how are we to understand that number itself, the 144,000? Is that to be literal and specific or is that symbolic and representative? And and how do the 144,000 in the first half of the chapter relate to the great uncountable multitude in the second half of the chapter? Are they different groups of of people or are they the same group of people? And what about the timing? When does this stuff happen? We've already seen that the six seals that were broken in chapter 6 covered the whole time frame from Jesus' resurrection all the way through his return and up until the final judgment. So when do the the, the things here in chapter 7 occur? The 144,000 and the great uncountable multitude. There's a lot of things for us to figure out here. And much of it, perhaps, that we won't agree on. And that's okay, because a lot of this is secondary, not primary. But a lot of our answers to these questions, we will not be in agreement on. But let's be sure to highlight that which we do agree on from this passage and then dive into some of the more debatable issues. Now, first of all, when John sees the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, I think we can all agree that he's not telling us that the earth is flat. So there we have established some incredible theological unity among us. Some very good common ground that we can agree together that the earth is not flat. Good. We've achieved that this morning. Uh, The phrase four corners of the earth simply is a way to refer to the whole earth. And so the angels have positioned themselves in such a way that they are in John's vision um, seeming to have control over all of creation, especially over these four winds. Now, there are different opinions as to what these four winds 
represent. Some say we should interpret them literally, that they, that they are literal winds or storms that have the potential to cause great harm and destruction on the earth. And so we're to interpret them literally as physical winds. Others say we should interpret them symbolically, that they symbolically refer to simply more tribulation that God is going to bring on earth in the end time. G.K. Beale suggests that they symbolically represent the four horsemen which came forth at the breaking of the first four seals as we saw in the opening verses of chapter 6. And if that's the case, then these are referring to, these four winds are referring to tribulation that comes as a result of God having sent, sending tribulation on the earth Ever since Jesus rose from the dead, continuing through our current day. And so for him, there's, a, there's more of a historical and present day fulfillment to these four winds. George Ladd, on the other hand, says it's more of a future fulfillment. He believes that they symbolically represent the, the trumpet and bowl judgments that are coming in the subsequent chapters. Tom Schreiner also believes that there's a future uh, fulfillment of this. He suggests that the four winds represent the final judgment itself, which we said last time was alluded to at the end of chapter 6 and those closing verses when the sixth seal was broken. Now, I think it's interesting to note that we're never told what happens to these four winds. We would expect, as we're kind of reading the story, that at some point the angels were, were told to let them loose and let them come down to earth and wreak havoc and cause destruction on the earth. But we're not told that. In fact, we're not told anything about what happens to these four winds in this scene, which leads me to believe that perhaps we should consider interpreting them symbolically or figuratively as opposed to literally. Now, I personally happen to hold loosely to Ladd's interpretation here. I think these four winds should be interpreted symbolically. They represent the tribulation and judgment that's coming as a result of the trumpet and the bold judgments that will be uh, fleshed out in the ensuing chapters. Those judgments, as we see, will continue to intensify and increase in destruction and it seems to fit best in my view with the flow of John's vision but but whatever these four winds are whatever they represent we can all agree that the four angels are holding them back that's the first thing that we can really all agree on together this morning the flat earth thing was just a tease right so whatever these four winds are and whether we should interpret them literally or symbolically, they are strong, they are powerful in John's vision, they have the power to, to cause great destruction on the earth, but they don't in John's vision, not yet at least, because they're being held back by the four angels. Angels are preventing the winds from wreaking havoc on the earth. Now why are they doing that? We're told in verses 2 and 3 that they're instructed to do that by another angel. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, which is in the east. And we're told that this angel comes with the seal of the living God. Now we're going to talk more about the seal in just a moment. It bodes importantly in this passage. 
And this angel called with a loud voice to the other four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea by, uh, through the winds, saying to them, verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until what? Until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So the angel comes from the rising of the sun in the east, and we're told why the four angels are holding back the four winds. And the reason is to give time and opportunity for the servants of God to receive the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we're probably not all going to agree as to what these seals on their foreheads represent, whether it's a a literal and visible seal or whether it's a symbolic and invisible seal. But I believe that we all can agree on the fact that the seals represent God's ownership and God's protection of these servants of God. We're going to hear reference to this seal over and over again throughout the remainder of Revelation. For example, in chapter 9, when the fifth angel blows his trumpet, and we have the fifth trumpet judgment, we're told this, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. We'll have fun interpreting that. They were told, here's what the scorpions were told, whatever they are. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so as we'll see, the seal is symbolic of God's protection of the servants of God. It protects those who have this seal. The seal also represents, though, ownership by God. It represents whose team you're on, whose army you're serving in. We'll see this because the seal on the foreheads of God's people is contrasted in the book of Revelation with the mark of the beast on the forehead of those who reject Christ. In John's vision, as we'll see later as we go through this book, the mark of the beast was a symbol that you were a follower of Antichrist and the seal of God on the forehead was a symbol that you were a follower of Christ. Now, whether these seals and these marks on the foreheads of these folks in John's vision are literal or not doesn't matter. Whether they have a a physical referent to physical literal bodies in our day or in that day of of believers and unbelievers really doesn't matter. What matters is what they mean. And I think we can all agree on what they mean. That those who get the seal, for them it means protection and it means ownership by God. So let's summarize what we can agree on about this passage. A couple of things. First, the four angels are holding back the four winds and preventing them from causing destruction on the earth. And secondly, the winds are restrained so that the servants of God can receive the seal of God on their foreheads, which represents God's ownership and God's protection of them. Now, there's obviously a lot more here, a lot more that we potentially may not agree on. But since we can't agree on those two points, I think the main takeaway points from this passage 
will come from them. And that's what I hope to lead to. But first, let's deal with the elephant in the room. The question that we're all asking. Who are the 144,000? Who are these folks? On the surface, they seem to be Jews. Jewish believers who come to faith in Jesus during some uh, future time of of tribulation. And admittedly, that is the most natural and, and literal interpretation of this passage. Because we're told that they're from the tribes of Israel, from the tribes of the sons of Israel. And then John goes on to elaborate that there are 12,000 of them from each of the 12 tribes. And indeed, many have interpreted this passage to mean just that. And it is admittedly, again, the most natural and literal understanding that these are Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus during a future time of great tribulation. Now, most who affirm that interpretation of this passage will also say that at this point, the church has been raptured. The church is no longer here. And it is these 144,000 born again, recently born again believers in Jesus Christ who then give witness to the gospel and through their witness of the gospel, this great multitude, this great uncountable multitude in the second half of chapter 7 come to faith in Jesus as a result of the witness of the 144,000 who are Jewish believers. And again, we should admit that this is the most natural and the most literal understanding of this text. But I think if we've learned anything in our study of Revelation to this point, it is that much of what we read here is just simply not natural, right? And so we, we shouldn't always feel compelled to interpret it literally, but sometimes figuratively. For example, the lion is a lamb. I don't know how the lion can be a lamb, but that's what John sees. That's what he tells us. He also tells us that, that the star fell to earth. How does a star, which is a billion times larger than the earth, fall to the earth? I don't know, but that's, that's how he describes what he sees in his vision. In chapter 1, he describes Jesus as a, as a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know what that looks like and what that might refer to, but that's, how, that's the, the language that he uses to describe what he sees. As we've said a number of times as we, in our study of Revelation, John is using an earthly language to describe an unearthly scene. The apocalyptic genre of literature, which this is, is characterized by using fantastic visions to describe spiritual realities. So when we're told about 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel who have the seal of God on their foreheads, I don't think we should feel compelled to interpret that literally and to understand even the 144,000 to be literal. Perhaps that too should be interpreted symbolically. But what about the seemingly clear statement here? excuse me, that they're from the tribes of Israel. How how can we understand that to mean anything other than they are Jews who come to faith in Jesus during a future time of tribulation? Well, I think if if we're careful here, there's good reason to question that interpretation. Chief among them is the fact that this list of the 12 tribes of Israel doesn't match any other list of the 12 tribes of Israel that we have in all of Scripture. 
Nowhere else in the Bible, when it gives us the 12 tribes of Israel, are these 12 names provided. And that should at least cause us to question, who's he describing here? Let's consider for a moment just some of the irregularities in this list. First of all, the tribe of Dan is conspicuously absent, and we don't know why. There there have been a lot of theories that have been put forth as to why Dan might be left off of this list, but honestly, none of them are sufficient. He's just not there. In addition to that, we have the tribe of Joseph and the tribe of Manasseh given, which is very strange. Why? Well, Joseph's sons were Manasseh and Ephraim. And in the Bible, when the tribes of Israel are given and they're being referred to the inheritance of Israel, specifically in the promised land, sometimes Joseph is left off and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are included. Because Joseph, as you recall from the end of Genesis, when Jacob, who is Israel, is giving out his blessings, he gives his son Joseph a double portion. And he, in a sense, he calls Manasseh and Ephraim his own. So many times what we see in the the list of the tribes is that Joseph's sons are listed instead of Joseph. Now, you would say, that makes 13, right? But typically, when the tribes of Israel are talking about inheritance in the promised land, the tribe of Levi is left off. Why? Well, because in the giving out of the inheritance of the land, the, the tribe of Levi was left out of that inheritance because as Levitical priests, they were told that their inheritance was God himself. They didn't get a portion of the land. And so when we have the 12 tribes describing that kind of inheritance, typically what happens is that Levi is left off and Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are included and that makes up the 12. But that's not what we have here. Instead, in this list, we do have Levi. He is here. And it's not describing any kind of inheritance in the land. We don't have Dan. He's gone. And instead, we have both, uh, instead of both of Joseph's sons being listed here, we have Joseph himself and one of his sons, Manasseh, being listed here, which is just very unusual. Again, we don't find this list anywhere else in Scripture when Scripture describes the 12 tribes of Israel, which should lead us to ask, Who is this Israel that John is referring to here? We know in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul often refers to there being both a physical Israel as well as a spiritual Israel. Physical Israel entered into physically by birth and spiritual Israel entered into spiritually by rebirth or by faith in Jesus, the former being ethnic national Israel, physical Israel, the latter being spiritual Israel, the Israel of faith, or the church, the New Testament church. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Sure seems like it is, right? It's outward and physical. And if you're, if you're a Jew outwardly, then you are a Jew. But he says, no. 
No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so, so a Jew is, is, is one who has not just received the physical sign of the covenant, but the spiritual sign of the covenant. That's the true Israel, the one who is the Israel by faith, spiritually. When Paul later in Romans chapter 9 is, is dealing with the very real problem of why it seems as though most of Israel has rejected the Messiah and rejected the gospel, he writes this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, just because most of Israel that we see seems to have rejected the Messiah, it's not as though God's promises to Israel have failed. It goes on, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now that's quite a statement. Not all who are descended from Israel, who's Jacob, belong to Jacob. He goes on, not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. Now, if you were talking about your kids, that, that would not be the case, right? All children who are my offspring are the children of Ken and Susan. But he says here that there, is a, there, there are spiritual children of Abraham. And they're not the children of Abraham because they're just his offspring. But, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, it is through the son of promise, not just through the son of physical birth. Paul will later say in Galatians 3.29, which by the way, the church in Galatia was primarily Gentiles. He says to them, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, heirs by faith, not heirs by physical birth. Now, that's great for the Apostle Paul, but what about John here in Revelation? Just because Paul differentiates between a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel doesn't mean that that's necessarily what John is doing here in Revelation chapter 7, unless we found evidence here that John himself made the same differentiation. And that's exactly what we saw earlier in this book. In the letters to both the church at Sardis, excuse me, the church at Smyrna, as well as the church at Philadelphia, we see John recording that Jesus talked about, quote, those who say that they are Jews but are not. Remember that? He, he talked about those who, are, who say that they are Jews but are not, and he said, instead he referred to them as the synagogue of Satan. In other words, he was saying that there were Jews in town that, who, who weren't really Jews. There were those who were children of Israel in town who weren't really the true Israel. Instead, they rejected the gospel. They rejected Christ. And so they, therefore, they were working for the enemy. So they were a synagogue of Satan. So already in this very same book in Revelation, we have precedent for the differentiation between a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel between an ethnic national Israel and a true spiritual Israel, twice. And so it should be no stretch for us at all to then conclude that these 144,000 are part of the true Israel, the, the Israel of faith, in other words, the church. 
And most of the commentators that I'm leaning on in my study of this say exactly that, that these 144,000 symbolically represent the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church, believers in Christ, the redeemed of all ages. And most of them will also tell us that the number itself, the 144,000, is also to be interpreted symbolically to represent, excuse me, to represent all believers of all time, the church of all ages. See, we have to be consistent in our hermeneutic. We have to be consistent in how we approach our interpretation of Scripture. If we interpret the tribes of Israel literally, that they are Jewish believers, then we also have to interpret the 144,000 literally, that there are 144,000 of them. But if we interpret the, uh, the, the tribes of Israel here symbolically, that they're representative symbolically of the church, then we should also interpret the 144,000 symbolically as well. We have to be consistent. If we don't, we get into trouble. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done with this text. They interpret Israel symbolically, just like I've just described, that it represents believers, Christians. But they interpret the 144,000 literally, that there will only be 144,000 who get to heaven. And so for them... The 144,000 here are those tier one God followers who will make it to heaven. Whereas the great multitude in the second half of chapter 7 are the kind of the tier two uh, God followers who will stay on earth, survive the tribulation somehow, and live forever on earth. But they err in their interpretation because they're inconsistent in their hermeneutic. They're inconsistent in how they approach the interpretation of Scripture. So if we're going to interpret this Israel here symbolically to represent the church, which is what I'm affirming and how I understand this to, to, be, uh, to, to be referring to the church, then we should also interpret the 144,000 symbolically as well. Now, this is not new in our study of the Revelation. Um, using numbers symbolically is um, one of the characteristics of uh, the apocalyptic genre of literature in general and of the book of Revelation in particular. We've already noted a number of times that the, the Holy Spirit, who is one, is referred to many times as the seven spirits before the throne in John's vision. Seven referring to the number of completeness. So here in this passage, the number 12 represents uh, perfection or completeness of governing or ruling authority. And we arrive at the number 144,000 by multiplying 12 times 1,000. And we do that for all 12 tribes. And so we multiply it by 12 again. So some have suggested that the 12 times 12, um, the, the first 12 represents the uh, 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and the second 12 that we multiply it by represents the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Um, we have no way of confirming that in Scripture. It's just a nice guess. All we do know is that the number 12 in Scripture represents completeness of governing authority, and the number 1,000 represents military power and strength, and so 12,000 12 times, or 144,000. A number symbolically representative of the redeemed of all time. Now, just to give you a little bit of a preview into next week. Since that, that's how I understand 
the 144,000 to be interpreted, that they symbolically represent the universal church throughout the ages, then that also means that what we will see in the second half of chapter 7 in the great uncountable multitude that is before the throne is the very same group. It's another picture of the church. Note there in verse 4 that John tells us that he heard the number of the seal, that there were 144,000. He heard that. And then next week in verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count. So in verse 4, he heard one thing, and in verse 9, he turned around and he looked and he saw another thing. That's reminiscent of chapter 1, when John hears a voice like a trumpet. And then he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands, and standing in the midst of the seven lampstands is one like a son of man. Or in chapter 5, when John heard one of the elders talk to him about a lion who was worthy, and he turned, and what did he see? He saw a lamb. Same thing is happening here in chapter 7. John hears of the 144,000, but then he looks, and he sees a great uncountable multitude. I think he's seen the same group, the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed of the ages. So consequently, I believe what we have in chapter 7 is two visions of the same group of people at different times from different perspectives. In the first vision, he sees the 144,000 sealed servants of God lined up by tribe as, as if preparing for battle, ready to face the tribulation that's coming, ready to do battle for her king. And church, that's us. That's us, equipped for battle ready for spiritual warfare, to face the tribulation of our day and the tribulation that may come in our future for our king. And then in the second half of chapter 7, which we'll see next week, we see the bride of Christ again, but this time from a different perspective. This time on the other side of that. All the battles are over at this point. The warfare is complete. And now the bride is in robes of white, And is worshiping her king, who, by the way, was with her all along throughout all of those battles. So what do we learn from this portion of this vision in the first eight verses of chapter 7? As we've done nearly every week, in order to answer that question, we have to go back to the original audience the churches in the first century in Asia Minor and ask how would they have applied this particular passage to their lives. And I think they certainly would have identified with 144,000 here. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles in those churches, they were mostly Gentiles, but regardless, they would have understood that, that as the church, they were the true spiritual Israel, that they were the chosen people of God. That they were the elect, or at least part of the elect. And so they would have identified with this 144,000. And in identifying with them, they would have seen themselves to be two things. They would have seen themselves to be servants, and they would have seen themselves to be sealed. Note in verse 3, the angel who is telling the other angels to hold back the four winds tells them that they should do that until the servants of God are sealed. 
The word servant there is Paul's favorite uh, nomenclature for himself. It's the word bondservant. The, 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 in Greek, the doulos of God. Paul often refers to himself as the bond slave, the bond servant of Christ. So right in the middle of breaking these seals on the scroll, Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, gives John a vision of these 144,000 ready to face the tribulation, and he calls them the doulos of God. And John's readers would have recognized that as they faced the tribulation of their day and as they faced the persecution of their time, they did so as the doulos of God. That they were doing that, facing those things as bond slaves of God. Facing whatever they must face for His glory and His namesake. And church, that's how we must face the tribulation of our day. And it's how we must face whatever tribulation might come in our tomorrow. That we see ourselves as the doulos of God. That we are the bond slaves of Christ. And that we face whatever we must face for His glory and His namesake. A couple of the commentators that I read remarked at how these 144,000 are are lining up by tribe and they're numbering them by tribe as if soldiers lining up by company ready for battle, preparing for war. And in this vision, they are. They're preparing for the tribulation to come, much of it at the hands of the enemy, as we'll see, the Antichrist and the great dragon, just as John's readers were in the first century. And just as we do today in the 21st century, as we prepare for battle today, and we prepare to face the tribulation of our time. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should put on our spiritual armor and be ready for spiritual warfare because the enemy wants to trip us up and keep us from persevering. And so as we ready ourselves for the tribulation of today and the tribulation of tomorrow, we remind ourselves that we do so as the doulos of God, servants of our King, ready to face whatever we must face for His glory. The seal of God on their foreheads in part symbolized, as we said, ownership. That we are not our own. We're bought with a price. When, when Paul was exhorting the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to fight against sexual sin in their church, he exhorted them, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So church, we, we, we battle against sin in our lives and we persevere through tribulation and persecution as servants, as those who have been bought with a very high price. And the price was the spilled blood of Jesus at Calvary. And because of that, man, we owe him everything. And we are gladly, gladly his bondservants. We give up being a slave to sin, and we gladly become a slave to God, a bondservant of Jesus. 
But secondly, in identifying themselves with the 144,000, John's original first century readers would have seen themselves as being sealed as well. What a glorious reminder that would have been to them of the sealing of the Holy Spirit on them. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is our experience if we've come to faith in Jesus. Paul writes, In Him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. In other words, when you came to faith in Christ, when you, when you believed the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so if we, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we, we receive the seal of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we've been given an inheritance, but that, that seal is a deposit guaranteeing that that inheritance is ours until we take possession of it one day. But the Spirit is given to it as a, as a guarantee of that, as a, as a seal of that, that we belong to Him. Later in Ephesians 4, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the, for the day of redemption. So at, at the moment we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And when the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, He brings with Him all kinds of very practical and and helpful benefits for our walk with Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our suffering. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayer life and many, many more things. But we're told that the Holy Spirit is given to us and in us as a seal. Just like this seal that is laid on the 144,000 in John's vision. And the seal of the Holy Spirit communicates to us the same thing that the seal communicates to the 144,000. God's ownership of us and God's protection of us. The seal of the Holy Spirit means that we belong to Him. We're His people. We belong to God. See, we may be American citizens, we may be residents of the state of Georgia, we may be, may be members of a, of a club or members of a sports team or, or, or members of a, of a school, but we only belong to one, and that is the Lord our God. We don't belong to anyone or anything else. We are owned by our God. We're not, we're not owned by our employer. We're not even owned by our family. We're not even owned, we, we don't even own ourselves. But we are a owned people. We are owned by the Lord our God. And that is something to rejoice about. Because we're told that Jesus one day will return and take his own to be with him, to be home. But the seal of the Holy Spirit also symbolizes God's protection of his children. Now, what does that protection actually look like? Does the seal represent some kind of supernatural force field that prevents us from all harm and suffering and and hurt in this world? Of course not. Just ask Job. Just ask Paul. Just ask the apostles. 
Even the Apostle John here who is exiled, that is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Just ask any of John's original readers in the first century who were suffering persecution for, as followers of Christ at the hands of Caesar. They would not have understood this seal to mean that they were physically shielded from that persecution, but that they were going to be spiritually shielded through that persecution. And that's a theological theme that we'll see repeated throughout Revelation. God's people are not physically shielded from tribulation, but are spiritually shielded through tribulation. Nowhere in Scripture is there any promise of deliverance from suffering in this life. There will be suffering and tribulation in this fallen world, even for God's people. And we should probably say, especially for God's people, because the enemy wants to attack us and cause us to back away from God and leave him so that he can rob God of his glory. And we're never promised that God will supernaturally shield his people from the suffering and tribulation that come from living in a fallen world, even at the end. Nor are we told that he will prevent the enemy from attacking us in this fallen world. But we are promised that we will be shielded through that tribulation. That's what this protection looks like as a result of this seal. That's what it looks like. He has promised that those who are truly his, who have come to him in faith, who have the seal of the Holy Spirit, will persevere to the end. will never leave the faith. And he will ensure that that is the case. Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me, I will not cast out. And I will lose nothing of all that he has given to me, and I will raise them all up on the last day. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, who's that? It's Jesus. He who began that work of salvation in you, who, he who brought you to faith, he who began that work, the promise is he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's sealed. It's done. Those who are in Christ, who have that seal, they will persevere in the end, and he will ensure that that happens. So friend, if you belong to Christ, if you've come to saving faith in Jesus, admitting that you're a sinner who deserves judgment forever because of your rebellion against the king, but you've, you've trusted in Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection from the dead as your only hope for rescue from what you deserve, then, friend, you are sealed. Which means that, that you're owned. You're, you're a servant of God. You're the doulos of God. And you are protected spiritually from anything that comes. And ultimately and finally, you are protected from God's wrath against sin. And when that final judgment comes, where God will pour out his just wrath on all sin, that seal will make all the difference. But friend, if you've not come to faith in Christ, then you're not sealed. And when that final judgment comes, there will be no one to take that punishment 
away. There will be no substitute. There will be no atonement, no covering for your sins. And you will have to pay the price yourself. And that price will be greater than you can possibly imagine. Your only hope is not to try to make yourself a better person. How silly is that when we really unpack the reality of the coming judgment? Your hope is not in trying to come to church and be a better Christian. Your only hope is to surrender and trust in Christ alone. His perfect life for you, His substitutionary death for you, and His resurrection from the dead. Place your faith in Jesus. He will bring you across that line of faith and make you one of His. Put that seal on you. And when that judgment comes, you will see that the wrath against your sin was already poured out on the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible and fantastic vision that you gave to your servant John and recorded for us in the pages of Scripture to help prepare us for battle, to line us up as your soldiers ready for spiritual warfare. And Lord, all of us in this room feel it. We live in a fallen world of sin and temptation all around us. We feel that warfare. We are so grateful to be reminded, Lord, that you've won that battle. You have us still engaging in that warfare, but it's not going to last forever. And so, Father, we're thankful that you've won that battle, and we can look forward to be re- being reunited with you one day. Until then, keep your church strong, keep your church unified, Lord, and keep your church prepared for battle. We want to glorify you as we engage in this battle. And Lord, for those among us or those in our homes or those within the earshot of my voice at this very moment who have not come to faith in Jesus, would you make the reality of the coming judgment real to them and help them to see the sober reality of their hopeless condition apart from you. And then, Lord, by your grace, give them the faith to trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope. Not their works, not their ability to try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, not in their ability to try to clean themselves up and make themselves acceptable to you, but throw themselves at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ who was able to not only open the scrolls, but to execute your plan for the salvation of your people by going to the cross and rising three days later. Give that person the faith, the trust in Jesus, Lord, we pray. And so seal them and with your Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that is theirs to come. Help us to live as a faithful church until then. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.